0: Welcome to Central Coast Voices, a program addressing the ramifications of change in our communities and beyond, and how today's choices will impact tomorrow's community. This program is a project of action for healthy communities, and it's provided in collaboration with KCBX and the Community Foundation of San Luis Obispo County. Today, our host, Mario Espinoza-Kulik, and his guests will discuss the many experiences, culture, and history of Palestinians on the Central Coast. We invite you to listen, learn, and participate in our conversation today, Thursday, between 1 and 2. And you can call in and be part of the discussion, too, at 805-781-3875. Or you can email your questions to voices at kcbx.org. So now let's join Mario and his guests. Over to you, Mario. Welcome to February, folks.
1: My name is Mario Espinosa Kulik, and you're listening to Central Coast Voices on KCBX. Today, we're hearing from Palestinian voices. We'll touch upon the historical and political roots of conflict in the region, warfare, and occupation, and how this impacts the daily lives of people on the Central Coast, along with the resilience and determination that mark the Palestinian people's struggles for justice and sovereignty. Our guests will touch on the personal and collective stories that paint a picture of Palestinian solidarity. I invite you to listen, learn, and engage with us in these important conversations. Today, we're joined by three guests, Dr. Ashraf Tubele, Associate Professor at Cal Poly, Dr. Farah al-Nakib, Associate Professor of History at Cal Poly, and Dr. Heidi Hutchison, a local emergency physician with on-ground experience in Gaza. Welcome to Central Coast Voices. Thank you. Before we start our main discussion, we're going to ask a little bit about your background and connection to our topic today. So, Ashraf, could you please start with us off and share about your experience and perspective on the Israeli war on Gaza? Yeah, definitely.
2: So it started when Zionist uh, immigrants Mm -hmm. were coming in from Russia, Poland, Germany, and settling in Palestine during the Ottoman Empire uh, over 100 years ago. And then uh, with the increasing number of Jews and uh, and and violence starting basically between some of the Jewish immigrants and the local indigenous Arab, Arab population. And uh, we've we've seen those many uh, like examples of, of this uh, cycle of violence that every every few years, basically. So the last word before this one on Gaza was in 2021. Mm-hmm. And uh, this is uh, this is basically because the UN uh, had adopted a resolution to divide Palestine between the Jewish immigrants from Europe and the uh, native Palestinian population, and uh, basically established the state of Israel after World War II in 1948. Uh, but since that time, Israel has been oppressing the Palestinian population, and the Palestinians never had their uh, their own state or freedom or uh, self determination. So so it is basically just one one more, uh, like, round of this ongoing violence against the Palestinian population.
1: And what brings you to this work?
2: Uh, What brings me to to this work is, uh, well, I was born and raised in Palestine, and I witnessed firsthand the Israeli apartheid system and the Israeli oppression, uh, ongoing oppression uh, against Palestinians. And uh, uh, I I witnessed my uh, younger brother, at age 14 being detained uh, for 6 months uh, for throwing a stone or or just marching in uh, in a rally uh, against the Israeli occupation uh, so uh I- Israel has always been doing this and they've always been behaving above the law international law or even local law and uh and there has never been uh consequences for them and uh, I feel that uh, people have to raise their voices against what's going on and against this injustice that has been going on for seventy over seventy five years now, uh against the Palestinian population and uh and it is time to stop this.
1: I appreciate you being here. Thank you. Farah, what led you to specialize in the history of the modern Middle East?
3: Yeah, thank you. So um I'm originally from the Middle East myself. I'm not a Palestinian person myself, but I'm I'm from Kuwait. Um, And my interest in, which is where I I was born and raised and grew up, and my interest in studying the history of the region was really as a way of wanting to understand and study our own history, which was born out of a desire to sort of better understand the region that I grew up in and make sense of the many dramatic events and changes um, that I was witnessing in my own lifetime growing up in the region, you know? And so... As a historian, you know, we learn that nothing ever happens just in a vacuum or out of context. And there's always multiple historical forces and factors that have to be taken into account when understanding um, and explaining both the past but also the present. And I think that uh, w- was a very important thing to learn, but also in I, uh, how I teach, particularly now teaching the history of the modern Middle East here in the U.S. Uh, you know, at, and at Cal Poly. Um, I I try to focus the way that I teach on providing students with the analytical tools and the historical knowledge to have a more critical understanding of the things that they hear about the region, about the Middle East, in the media, in public discourse, um, from politicians. And that, you know, a lot of what we hear, um, you know, this I think now more than ever, this historical perspective is really important, especially to counter a lot of misinformation or myths or misconceptions Um, that people have about the Middle East in general, but then also in particular about Palestine and the Palestine-Israeli conflict, as it's often referred to as, in particular. Um, And I think that's what brought me and draws me to this work. And particularly at a time like now, I see the importance of that historical perspective. But also, I think understanding that past as a way to be able to envision alternative futures, I think is also really important. Yeah,
1: appreciate that. Heidi, can you tell us about your work in Gaza and its impact
4: on you? Certainly. Um, first of all, thanks, Mario, for having me on the show. And um, a very humble thank you to both Ashraf and Farah for welcoming me to the table. You know, um, Arab voices and Palestinian voices in particular are the ones that I think we should strive to listen to as much as possible in this moment. And I'm neither. But I'm hopeful that my story may help support and lift up their voices. Um, So for some context, I grew up here on the Central Coast, and um, I'm now a local emergency physician. I'm board-certified in pre-hospital and disaster medicine, and I've had the opportunity to work um, internationally quite a bit, uh, most recently in Gaza. Being a white American, I grew up with really very little understanding of the regional history or political landscape beyond the sort of typical narrative put forth by American media and politicians. And prior to the past few months, I'd I'd argue that Palestinian existence was essentially absent from the majority of people's consciousness. And that was true for me, certainly, for most of my life. But thankfully, that changed for me over the years as I met and worked with a more diverse body of humanity and as I gained more exposure to world issues. In 2022, I thankfully had the opportunity to work with an organization um, contracting with the WHO, To teach a mass casualty management course uh, to nurses and physicians at five different hospitals in gaza we interacted online for several weeks for part of the course and then i was um, traveled there in person for part of the course as well and when i went there i already knew something of the apartheid system in place in the west bank and i already knew about the blockade and some of the history of gaza but um, many humanitarian workers before me have said you know you you really have to see gaza to fully comprehend it and That is a transformative experience and that was certainly true for me. In my time there, I witnessed a level of oppression that I really never imagined possible. Um, But despite that, and despite all of the other truly incredible forms of oppression that I witnessed, I was really amazed to find a vibrant, welcoming, deeply rich culture of humans who had built so much in the face of that oppression. There were, you know, delicious restaurants and favorite coffee shops. There were journalists and musicians and artists and photographers and so much more. There was a thriving university that produced great medical professionals among other things. There was a hospital system capable of caring for impressive range of issues and a developing ambulance system that was finding creative ways to handle their really unacceptable limitations. You know, 70% of Gaza are refugees from other parts of Palestine. But it's not, or it wasn't, just one large refugee camp. It was a really beautiful home to more than 2 million people, full of hopes and dreams extending far beyond the border walls. For example, one of my friends whose dream it was to have a career translating Disney movies into Arabic, who desperately wanted to one day visit Disneyland. Another friend who had helped produce a documentary about Gaza who couldn't attend the Sundance Music Festival where his film was being um, featured because he wasn't given permission to leave Gaza. A family who hosted me for dinner, their children only a little bit older than my own, who told me of their simple dream of security, peace, safety, and hope for the future for their kids. So meeting new friends there, hearing their dreams, and meeting their children, I really struggled to reconcile our shared humanity with their situation and the general dehumanization of Gazan society by my own society in particular.
1: Yeah, that's really important context for the situation that we're all facing in terms of the worldwide um, attention on Gaza at this moment. So I appreciate you uh, sharing your experience with us, Heidi, and wanted to extend an invitation to Ashraf if you wanted to include a little bit more about um, on the ground in Palestine, um, how... how was it growing up there, or how is it um, compared to when you were there? Now,
2: um, yeah. So on, on the ground, and th- this is a very good question because uh, many people think that, uh, especially the uh, U- like the U.S. administration, talk about stability in the Middle East, uh, in the West Bank, sorry, and the Middle East, of course, but, like, they specifically ask for stability in the West Bank, and, like, even yesterday, I think Blink- Blinken was asking for stability or, like, not to escalate in the West Bank. But uh, the thing that most people don't recognize is that Israel, since 1967, has been constantly and, uh, well, sometimes slowly but then some- sometimes even, like, aggressively encroaching onto Palestinian land day by day, day by day, year by year, The number of Israeli settlers has increased from zero in 1967 to uh, over 700,000 as of 2021. And uh, because of that and because of all the uh, Israeli uh, uh, measures in the West Bank, Human Rights Watch uh, released a report back in 2021. Uh, talking about apartheid and apartheid system and documented all the practices that Israel uh, are doing and the occupation is doing in, in the West Bank that amount uh, to the crime of apartheid, and which is very similar. Actually, probably even people from South Africa, like politicians from South Africa, said the apartheid system in Palestine in the West Bank is worse than the apartheid system in South Africa. Uh, because in, in Palestine, we have, like, I grew up... Uh, Uh, like seeing uh, Israeli settlers they have their uh Uh, Maybe I should point to the word "settlers." This is a word that is promoted by Israel uh, to give a positive connotation uh, to the settler movement, because like settlers here in the U.S., especially in the Western U.S., is seen as you know like a positive thing, inhabiting kind of barren lands where nobody was uh, was living and building civilization and so forth. But for us, it is it it is a very different uh, word, and uh, it is basically colonial. uh, settler movement, just like in Africa, in South Africa, in Namibia, and some of those places where uh, Europeans w- would, would go down and, and annihilate uh, the local population, or take their lands and build kind of new cities and build their uh, infrastructure on top of that. So the exact same thing is happening in Palestine with uh, like uh, Jewish-only roads, for example, uh, Jewish-only settlements, uh, again, colonial settlements. Uh, they, they would take the water uh, resources. Ninety percent of the water in the West Bank is uh, used by uh, Israel and the settlers. Ninety huh. percent. My mother, for example, in Nablus, she only gets water once a week when a, a small settlement of uh, of 700 uh, people or 1,000 people would have an olympic size swimming pool. And they have uh, running tap water 24-7, just like the Western uh, countries uh, and that's for the water if if you know like if somebody throws uh, throw the stone or even you know like if somebody just walks in a march uh, for throwing a rock they'd go for six months maybe a year in prison if an israeli person an israeli colonial settler kills a palestinian there'll be no no trial. There'll be nothing. They'll just, uh, yeah, like they were acting in Mm self-defense. And and we have lots of footage, lots of videos showing how the colonial settlers would attack farmers in the West Bank, for example, while they're harvesting their olive uh, crop uh, or would would prevent them from, like, going to work. We have the Israeli, uh, they call it uh, Israeli security barrier, which is more like an apartheid wall because it is, depending on the area, but it is up to, like, uh, Thirty feet high in some places or higher, and, and some like there's a town in the West Bank, uh, Qalqiliya, which is completely surrounded by the wall. And if anyone wants to exit the town, they have to go through a checkpoint, like through a gate, mm-hmm. to get out of the town. And uh, and this security border, uh, or like the, the way they call it, apartheid wall, we call it, uh, it was built on Palestinian land. It was not even built on the uh, 1967 Green Line. So and and hence the example of the town that is completely surrounded by that uh, wall, just uh, to secure the uh, or like ensure the security of the Israeli colonial uh, settlers who are armed to the teeth uh, in the West Bank. And these are just a few examples. Another example, like we had, uh, if we have time, we had like uh, uh, my family. We owned, for example, a citrus, uh, a citrus orchard, and that orchard went dry because the Israeli settlements next next door they w- they would drill uh like a 2000 meter deep 2000 meters like 7000 feet almost we're talking here 60 wow. 600 feet uh in the ground and we'll pull just will yeah like withdraw all the water uh from uh like we, we would use more like spring water for uh for irrigation they'll just uh like make that s- the, all these springs run dry and we ran out of water, so we had to uproot the trees, and this is kind of a typical uh, typical thing for them uh, to do to make su- to make people pe- to make sure that people are not really earning a living so that they can just yeah pack up and go yeah. leave, leave the country and, and go somewhere.
1: Those are very important issues to be aware of, and I appreciate you sharing about those. I'm looking forward to our conversation, and I will uh, reintroduce who I am to everyone. My name is Mario Espinosa-Kulik, with you for Central Coast Voices on KCBX, your Central Coast listener-supported radio station. As we continue on Central Coast Voices, our guests today are Dr. Ashraf Tubele, Associate Professor at Cal Poly, Dr. Farah Al-Nakib, Associate Professor of History at Cal Poly, and Dr. Heidi Hutchison, a local emergency physician with on-ground experience in Gaza. We have been getting to know them a little bit better and hearing about their work and learning more about the context of the Palestinian um, uh, people's experience in Gaza and the conflict between Palestine and Israel. We invite and welcome our listeners to bring your questions or comments about today's topic to our guests. To do that, call 805-781-3875 or you can email your questions to voices at kcbx.org. In this next section, I want us to focus on some of the details about the conflict between Israel and the Palestinian people, both in historical context and how that brought us to where we are today. I'm including in some questions that were first posed to me by my students at Cuesta College in San Luis Obispo taking Ethnic Studies for Educators and also students from the California Men's Colony taking Introduction to Social Justice and Ethnic Studies. And... Um, The first question comes from my students is what truly sparked the conflict between Israel and Palestine? Ashraf, I think you might have touched on this a little bit. If you want to elaborate more. um, And Farah, I know you also have some things that you'd like to share about that as well.
2: Um, So uh, I guess they're talking about like the historical perspective, not just like this very last uh, kind of war that has elapsed. Uh, Yeah, so as... As I mentioned before, uh, basically we had the Jewish immigration from Europe uh, into Palestine as as one way to, uh, like, um, to make it up for the uh, Holocaust and for the loss of lives that happened uh, to the Jews in, in during World War II and before that, and uh, also for anti-Semitism that was uh, thriving and uh, and vibrant in, in in Europe. So they they tried, uh, hey, yeah, let's create this kind of. A secure state maybe for for the Jews to make it up for them, uh, and they well they they picked Palestine although they had other options, and I'm sure uh, uh, Farah has a lot more information on this, uh, and she could probably give more uh, yeah like a better insight than me here uh, given yeah like she's more equipped with the uh, history, uh, but uh, so they. Uh, that Jewish immigration started to change the demographics in Palestine, and uh, the UN stepped in after, like, basically the the British were a- encouraging the Jewish immigration uh, all the years between 19, uh, 1919 or 1918, when they took uh, Palestine over from the Ottomans, all the way to 1948, when they stopped their mandate, they call it kind of mandate, uh, and and they also issued the Balfour declaration in 1917 which which was the the main thing that uh, uh encouraged uh zionists uh to immigrate uh to palestine because of the uh, uh british uh uh friendly uh t- t- policy towards that and uh, so with that uh, the jewish immigration uh, started to change the demographics on the ground uh, like from five percent, etc., up to yeah, like twenty percent, and and so forth. And then uh, the UN uh, stepped in with uh, the UN partition plan for Palestine in 1947, which gave, uh, according to the plan, 1947 uh, from 1947, it gave 54 uh, percent to the Jews and 46 uh, percent to the Palestinians. Although the Palestinians owned the whole land before and although their numbers were higher than the Jews uh, at the time. And they gave even the best land to the Jews and gave the barren, kind of hilly uh, areas uh, to the Palestinians. And this is just according to the plan, but that plan never materialized because Israel just took over the whole area in 1967 and uh, started kicking out Palestinians, well, starting from 1948 and before. And so that legitimacy that was given to the state of Israel by the UN and by the UN resolution, which was more like Eurocentric. The UN at the time is not the UN that we know today. It was more like most of it, uh, I don't know how many uh, countries there were in there at the time in 1947, maybe like 40 countries or so, but like 30 of those were European countries. And and it was the Europeans who basically sealed the fate of Palestine and decided what they wanted to decide. And uh, based on that, uh, the state of Israel was created... And the Jewish, uh, like, basically, they kind of, uh, the Zionists, uh, etc., t- took over the entire land, and they started kicking out Palestinians uh, slowly but surely.
3: Could I jump in with one other point that I think is I appreciate the, um, what you said, that these are questions your students ask. And, you know, as a, as a professor of history, too, I think there's a very prevailing misconception here in the U.S. in particular, and in the West in general, that this is a conflict between like Arabs and Muslims on the one hand and Jewish people on the other that has been going on for thousands of years um, and therefore can't really be resolved, right? That this has always been. But as Ashraf was alluding to, you know, this is actually, this started to go to the question like when did the spark begin? in late 19th century Europe, right, with the, as Ashraf mentioned, the rise of Zionist, which was an ethno-nationalist ideology that aimed to create a state for the Jewish people, particularly European Jews who are escaping persecution and discrimination in Europe. And so, for instance, the founder of modern Zionism, uh, who's known as the father of modern Zionism, Theodor Herzl, believed that Jewish colonization of Palestine was necessary. And colonization was the term that he and other Zionist leaders used. They were very explicit about the fact that this was about colonizing land. As Ashraf mentioned, for instance, Argentina was also viewed as an option for potentially creating a Jewish state. Ultimately, they settled on Palestine. Um... And that was what facilitated this process over the next few decades of European Jews then moving to Palestine, colonizing the land, and then permanently displacing and dispossessing the indigenous population from their historical lands with the backing and support first of European Zionist organizations and then, as Ashraf mentioned, with the British, who took over control of Palestine from 1917. And then ultimately that sort of facilitated then the creation of The partition of Palestine into two separate states, um, although the Palestinian state has never um, had the right to self-determination. And then, you know, we picked up the history that Ashraf mentioned. But I think that was the important point to raise, is that the misconception that this is just a centuries-long conflict that we can't fix. Mm
1: -hmm. We have a caller from Santa Maria, Dina, who appreciates the conversation. and Looping you in. Go on, Dina. Hello. Hi, how are you? Good, how are you? Good, thanks for calling in.
5: yes, i they told me to hold on, so I don't know what's going on.
1: <laughs> so um we're still having the conversation. I just wanted to loop you in and to share a little bit about your comments.
5: yeah, i wanna I wanna let the American public know that you know our tax money is being used to fund the genocide you know we're we're struggling to even put food on the table here we have um, homeless uh, up the roof, you know, and we just have money to fund for genocide. And if we care about humanity and human rights, there's people starving every day over there. Women are dying; they can't even give um, birth without, you know, anesthesia. It, it's the mortality rate is is horrible. It's horrendous, and yet we're funding this. and And we need to even stop the lobbying thing. I mean, we are allowing APAC to control everything that happens in this country, which is a bribe. I mean, we are a democracy, so why do we allow our politicians to be bribed by a foreign entity?
1: I appreciate you calling in. Do you have a question for any of our guests today?
5: Um, no, I've, they're, they're, everything they said is on point so far.
1: Well, thanks for making everyone aware uh, about the taxes and also for calling in.
5: Yeah, maybe we can ask them what they think the American public should do, so we can um, not allow you know foreign entities to uh, to control us. And how do we stop our tax money from being used for funding a genocide?
1: Yeah, so let's turn it over to our guest Ashraf Farrah Heidi, do you have any response to that?
4: Um, Yeah, I, you know, I couldn't agree with you more, um, Dina, that we have a responsibility to pay attention to where our tax dollars are going. And if I know my community at all, I know that we care here where our tax dollars go um, and what kinds of decisions our politicians are making. Um, I, I think that we have a responsibility Um, and we have the power and the ability to demand that our politicians do their jobs to find a better way. Um, So please call um, or write to our elected representatives and tell them how you want your tax dollars spent.
5: Yes, thank you. And as a reminder, I hope everybody goes out and votes on March 5th to let, you know, our corrupt politicians who aren't caring about the American public, you know, we have Poverty is at, what um, increasing every day. Uh, we don't have universal health care, education, but we have money to send a genocide. And I hope the American public stands against this. You know, They stand against the genocide, against our tax money um, being used to starve and kill a population just because of their racial background.
1: Yeah. Ashraf?
2: Yeah, I love that question, Dina. Thank you very much, and it's a very valid point. And I was at a Carwell Town meeting last week in uh, AG, and that question was raised exactly like, or almost as you phrased it, like uh, how is the uh, how is money uh, uh, changing American politics, and how is that part of the elections? And he. He he said, "Yeah, sadly, yes, money is part of the game, and uh, and sadly, this is how the American uh, elections uh, political system uh, altogether uh, works." And uh, on on this point, I know that Karbajal has uh, received uh, over fifty thousand dollars from APAC. APAC being American-Israeli Public Affairs Committee, and this is the major the major Israeli uh, lobbying group in Washington D.C and uh another way of doing this is uh okay like we have we have other other candidates like uh, i know elena Pasquarella is running against carbajal uh, because carvajal is one of those uh, uh politicians who refuse to sign on a ceasefire uh demand uh, in in gaza we have uh, as of last week there were sixty five uh members of congress uh well senators and representatives uh who have uh, signed uh uh, like uh like asking for uh a ceasefire in Gaza, like a ceasefire of the war on Gaza, basically, because it's a one sided war more or less. And uh Karbohal was not one of them and Karbahal has, has always been just repeating the Israeli propaganda and uh using the Israeli lies as as a way to uh, uh to justify the war and the genocide that is going on.
1: Thank you, Dina, for raising those questions and sparking more dialogue within our conversation today.
5: Thank you. Thank you for allowing me to uh, voice my concerns. I appreciate it.
1: We're going to take a short break to hear from our team, and we'll be right back on Central Coast Voices.
0: From the KCBX Community Calendar, celebrate youth drumming with a beat party on Saturday, February 10th from 10.30 a.m. to 12.30 p.m. at Texture on Marsh Street in San Luis Obispo. Presented by Race Matters and Rise Up Slow. The event is for ages 10 and up, and it's led by musician and educator Tracy Morgan. Pre registration is required. Um, to find the link and more information, you can visit the calendar tab at kcbx.org. Where you'll also find uh, arts, entertainment, and nonprofit events in San Luis Obispo, uh, Santa Barbara, and Southern Monterey counties, you could submit your item or event to be shared. You'll find it right there on the calendar page at our website at kcbx.org. Central Coast Voices will continue right after these messages.
2: I'm Maria Hinojosa, and next time on Latino USA, a conversation with Jay Johnson, the former secretary of the Department of Homeland Security under President Obama.
0: Are there things that I would do differently with the benefit of hindsight? Yes, of course. But we're always smarter in retrospect. That's next time on Latino USA.
3: On the next Fresh Air, Kai Wright, host of the podcast Blind Spot: The Plague in the Shadows, about the early years of the AIDS epidemic when so little was known about HIV and so much was misunderstood. Throughout his journalism career, Wright has covered HIV and AIDS and its impact on his communities as a gay man
0: and as a black gay man. Join us. You know that thing that's been happening since the pandemic, all those open jobs there have been? That is actually a macroeconomic conundrum. One thread that's become evident is that people didn't have to lose their job uh, for inflation to come down. I'm Kai Rizdahl, a chat about a thing economists had been thinking was true, but maybe wasn't. We'll explain next time on Marketplace.
5: In cities across the country, violent crime is dropping. So why do many Americans feel less safe?
0: Crime affects people very personally. So the only way to get people to change their perceptions on a macro scale is for progress to continue.
5: I'm Ari Shapiro. We unpack the statistics and get the view from three cities on All Things Considered from NPR News.
0: And that is ahead today on this Thursday here on KCBX. Latino USA comes your way at 2 o'clock following this program. Fresh air at 3 and then it's Marketplace at 4 with All Things Considered from 4.30 to 6.30 leading to an evening of music. Now let's return to Mario Espinoza-Kulik and his guests on Central Coast Voices. Back to you, Mario. Thanks, Brad. Welcome back, y'all. Today on Central Coast Voices, we're discussing
1: the complexities and human stories within the Palestinian experience. Our guests today are Dr. Ashraf Tubele, Associate Professor at Cal Poly, Dr. Farah al Nakib, Associate Professor of History at Cal Poly, and Dr. Heidi Hutchison, a local emergency physician with on-ground experience in Gaza. In this next section, I'd like to focus on the current situation and experiences of Palestinian people. Heidi... From your experience as an emergency physician, can you describe the humanitarian and medical situation in Gaza Um, and a little bit about what was described um, and what is uh, currently uh, the genocide that we're witnessing?
4: Yeah, certainly. Um, I think it's really important to understand the humanitarian situation leading up to these past few months uh, first. Um, I discussed earlier how Gazans have, you know, had found a beautiful way to thrive and to build so much in the face of oppression. But I think understanding the level of oppression that existed prior to October is uh, really important. So, you know, Gaza is often referred to as the world's largest open air prison. And there were a lot of things that I saw that helped me understand that. I saw one of the most densely populated cities on Earth with more than two million people whose population is unable to leave without express permission from the Israeli military or f- from Egypt. Um, they, they do not control their own airspace, don't have a right to an airport, and do not uh, control their own coastline. There are Israeli surveillance drones flying overhead 24-7. Uh, you can hear them loudly and constantly. Um, Israel uh, largely ultimately controls the water supply and the electricity supply in Gaza um, and they uh, control who may um, may uh, enter and uh, and leave Gaza um, and the ability to leave Gaza um, if you are Gazan is is actually quite rare Um Uh, You know, as I mentioned before, Gazans and the international aid community had done a remarkable job at building an impressive functioning medical system, but despite the very passionate and capable professionals um, developing their medical system there, um, the blockade, especially the flow of goods, had an ever-present suffocating effect, uh, preventing it from developing beyond a certain ceiling. And I won't spend more time describing the pre-October blockade context, but it's important to know that even small aspects of the blockade really cumulatively forced a substandard, less safe and more fragile medical system than they could have had otherwise. So that was prior to October. And what we're seeing now um, broadcast for us to witness with our own eyes is the massacre of a civilian population and the total destruction of a healthcare system. In fact, we're funding it with our own tax dollars, as Dina um, passionately commented on. I won't go through all of the many horrifying statistics, but I wanna highlight just a couple. According to WHO, as of today, 100,000 Gazans are dead, injured, or missing and presumed dead. More than 27,000 people have been confirmed dead. A child is killed about every 15 minutes. That's one in every 100 children dead since October 7th. And that doesn't even begin to touch on the number of wounded, sick, displaced, or starving. There's been a total collapse of the healthcare system and in fact a well-documented, undeniable targeting of healthcare facilities. Mm -hmm. People can't call an ambulance. Burns, wounds, and traumatic amputations are being cared for without anesthetic, without clean water, and without antibiotics. Surgeries are being performed on the ground outside or in tents without any anesthesia. These aren't isolated stories and they're they're not hyperbole, they're happening to thousands of people. And beyond all of that, every aspect of this, the withholding of water, food, electricity, and fuel, each has a ripple effect, creating a tidal wave of destruction from a medical point of view. ICU patients have died because there's no way to power the ventilators. Premature infants have died because their incubators couldn't be powered. We're starting to see the more insidious repercussions of disasters on this scale, like the spread of infectious diseases, and we will undoubtedly learn of the high numbers of deaths from those. And this is all not to mention the mental health trauma that will be its own crisis for many decades to come. I'm devastated to know that my colleagues there are suffering a a moral injury beyond my comprehension because of the completely impossible conditions that they're trying to work in. And I'll share one last thought about that. Um, I really want to highlight that what's happening right now is an ever-expanding man-made humanitarian catastrophe, truly unlike anything seen in recent history. From a medical perspective, this is catastrophic on far more levels than my mass casualty management teaching could ever possibly reach. So much has been lost. And we as a culture might be numb to hearing about the sort of plight of suffering uh, suffering populations across the world. But this is uniquely man-made, uniquely of unprecedented scale, and importantly, it's uniquely preventable.
1: We have a caller on the line, Ali from Pomo. Hi, Ali.
5: Hi.
1: Hi. What's your question? Yeah, I
5: wanted to ask about um, the difference between anti-Zionism and anti-Semitism, and how pro-Palestine actions are often equated as being anti-Semitic.
1: Yeah, that sounds like a great question for our guests. Father, do you want to start us off? Sure.
3: Yeah, that's a really, really important question, Ali, and I'm glad you're you're asking that because the two terms often get conflated, or the two concepts get conflated, and and a lot of that often happens by, um, you know, as as a way of shutting down any critical discussion about, um, you know, Israel and Israel's actions in Palestine, not just now but historically. So, you know, we have to remember that Zionism is a political ideology that, as I mentioned earlier, sort of emerged in the late 19th century under very particular historical circumstances, right? We can uh, relate the rise of Zionism to rising anti-Semitism in Europe and so on, where Zionism was a nationalist ideology, just like other nationalist movements. But in this case, the idea was, you know, creating a state um, an ethno-national state, meaning a state for the Jewish people, where the Jewish people would be in a majority. Um, you know, Judaism is a religion, and, and, and that existed well before the advent of Zionism. Um, you also have many um, Zionists who are not Jewish, and many Jewish people who are anti-Zionist. So the conflation of the two terms has been used, as you mentioned, in particular to shut down any sort of pro-Palestine speech and action um, as a way to also uh, prevent people from doing so, from speaking up or taking action. The charge of anti-Semitism is abhorrent. Anti-Semitism itself is abhorrent, right? And, and, uh, uh, you know, most, you know, the, the idea of as as is Islamophobia and all other forms of racism, and you know, to to then charge people who are speaking out against uh, for for Palestinian rights and the right to self determination and Palestinian existence with anti semitism is also very abhorrent. Um, and so I think that's also a very important point, and it is part of the discussions that we're having, especially at college campuses right now and across the country. So I do appreciate you asking that question. It also elides the fact that there were historically and continue to exist Jewish Palestinian, Palestinian people of Jewish descent. Um, And that predated the arrival of European settlers in the 19th century, too. And so I think, you know, we need to stop thinking of Palestinian and Jewish histories as competing and mutually exclusive entities, because for most of the history of this region, that wasn't the case. It only started to become so with the advent again of Zionism, where the goal became creating a separate ethno-nationalist Jewish state, which would require then the cleansing of this territory of Palestinians, as well as all trace of the history of the people who lived in this region. We're seeing that right now too. I mean, Heidi just you know very vividly described the genocide taking place. And alongside with that, the process of ethnic cleansing also includes not only the displacement of people from the land, but the destruction of historical sites, museums, libraries, ancient archives, mosques, churches, All have been destroyed in the last four months. And that's part of that process of, you know, erasing the history that has existed in this region. And part of that history has also entailed centuries of the peaceful coexistence of Muslims, Arabs, and Jews. So I think it's uh, important—Muslims, Christians, and Jews as well, I I meant to say. So I think it's an important thing that we need to untangle and disentangle these two terms. So I do appreciate you asking that question.
1: Mm -hmm. Anything else, Ali? Yeah, I suppose as a follow-up,
5: if that's okay, um, given, you know, this history that shows that these terms really are not synonymous, why do you think this has become such a common discourse in the U.S. right now? Um, because I know there's people concerned about what's happening in Gaza, but they're concerned to speak out mm-hmm. because they don't want to offend, you know, their, their Jewish friends, their Jewish community. So I'm wondering if you can speak about why this is a discourse that's taken hold.
3: I kind of I think you just kind of answered your own question, right? It, it prevents people from speaking out. And one one thing I want to say um, in the last four months, you know, the the strong allyship that we have seen from the Jewish from Jewish Americans and the Jewish American community, who you know, groups like Jewish Voice for Peace, if not now, and others who have you know, our Jewish brothers and sisters who have been standing so strongly and really taking enormous risks, including as you mentioned, being excluded from their own community and so on, to speak out against what they're seeing. Um, And so, but as you said, it does take, it comes with risk. And I think a lot of that is intended to uh, obfuscate the situation and also shut down critical discourse. Um, As you said, people don't want to be identified, again, in such an abhorrent way. Um, But that's sort of the the reality that exists.
1: Astro, Heidi, anything to add?
2: Um, yeah maybe uh although this question didn't come up but I think uh this is uh this is also related to so how some people uh try to depict this conflict as a religious conflict mm-hmm. when it is not really a, re- a religious conflict at all and it is just a political conflict uh, so we have seen how uh how Jews were treated and uh, in Moorish Spain, for example, under under the Muslim rule, and and they and and this is the, in their own words, uh, words that uh, they have they had their golden age basically as a Jewish uh, people under the Muslim rule, and the same thing, you know, like even in the Umayyad and Abbasid. Uh, states in early Islam and uh, even in today's like modern kind of uh, world like in Egypt uh, Iraq, Morocco, Tunisia uh, Jews have been uh, occupying kind of top positions ministers and uh, advisors uh, like to the Supremes etc in all those places so it is not really you know Jewish versus Muslim conflict and uh, as as Farah uh, said we have uh, lots of Jewish friends uh, she mentioned a few groups there there are so many different groups out there, Natori carta, Independent Jews, Jewish Voices, in all those places in Europe, in the US, uh, in Canada everywhere we have anti-Zionist Jews mm-hmm. and uh, those are against Israeli policies so being anti-Israeli and anti-Zionist policies or anti-occupation policies in, in Palestine does not really mean that we are against Jews
1: I appreciate that Allie, uh thank you for your question and chiming in today yeah thank you and so this really made me think about other things that um uh, are popping into the context for what's happening what we're seeing for example, we've been saying genocide um uh, uh and talking about it at length but I wanted to kind of ask more specifically how do what how is what we're seeing with this um, uh genocide Uh, diverge or reflect the principles outlined in international law, such as the Geneva Conventions and UN Resolutions?
3: Well, I mean, I think we can start maybe with um, looking at I mean, it's an interesting question, right? Because, you know, short of going through um, all the ways in which particularly Israel's occupation of Palestinian territories violates international laws. I mean, we could go through them one by one. There's a lot. I mean, I would recommend to readers a great book by Noura Erakat, who's a Palestinian-American lawyer and scholar called uh, Justice for Some Law and the Question of Palestine. So that really outlines that question. But I think we also need to remember that the enforceability of international law largely depends on... On sort of voluntary state consent and compliance. And not only does that mean that states must comply with the law, but it also means that there has to be the political will among the international community to make states uphold those laws. But that has never, that will has never existed. And we're seeing that to, the, to this day, when it comes to Israel, as we've been currently seeing. Um, and over the past century, international law has been strategically sort of reinterpreted and deployed to advance Israel's interests over that of Palestinians. Now having said all that, we've also just w- witnessed an incredibly historic moment with the international Court of with the South Africa bringing the case against uh, of genocide against Israel in, in the international Court of Justice, the ICj ruling that came out last Friday. Um, which as the first step, which did find that South Africa's case of that Israel was committing genocide plausible, which is the definition of how they would define that first step, and are now investigating. So we hope, you know, the the, the problem is that even if the ICJ finds that Israel is in violation of genocide and the Genocide Convention, the, Im, the the implementation, I mean, one of the provisional measures that the ICJ ruled was that Israel had to immediately stop uh, any actions that would cause the further death and destruction of the Palestinian people, which has not happened, uh, immediately allowing for humanitarian aid to enter, which has not happened. So again, the enforceability is really the issue.
1: And related to that, we um, are thinking about uh, the responsibility. Whose shoulders does that fall on? And we have a caller online too, CBAS, with a question related to that. Welcome, CBass. Hi. Hi. Um, would you like to ask your question?
6: Yes, I would, but what's interesting is they just kind of answered kind of part of the question that I had. Uh, my question is who altogether do we hold responsible for the genocide in Gaza? And I think what they kind of answered part of the question is what of the crimes being committed, who is should be held responsible? And I don't know if they know any specifics in terms of what international laws, Geneva conventions, and the United Nations resolutions are in violation right now?
2: Yeah, Ashraf, want to start us off? Uh, yeah. So, in terms of uh, who do we blame for the genocide that is going on? I think, the, uh, again, as Farah said, the, the South Africa put together a very, uh, a very well, uh, like a complete case actually against Israel, showing that uh, pretty much like almost all ministers and all of, uh, officials in the, US, uh, in the, well, U.S., in the Israeli government, starting with Netanyahu, going to the uh, Minister of Defense, and so many other ministers, we're calling Pal- Palestinians human animals, and we're calling them uh, like less than humans, and, and so forth, de- de- dehumanizing them, and, and telling some of them actually were uh, reciting, including Netanyahu himself, uh, when he when he was talking about the Amalekites, Amalekites, and how the Amalekites when they attacked the uh, children of Israel uh, back at the time, Amalekites being kind of a Canaanite uh, tribe, and uh, and talking how the Israelites should kill every single one of them, including pregnant pregnant women, including their animals, their sheep, everything. So so we do have very clear instructions here from all. Levels of government in the U- in 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 Israel and in the Israeli army uh, to commit the uh, genocide that is happening unfolding in front of our eyes today, and in terms of uh, you know who else holds responsibility, I think the U.S. Mm-hmm. the like the Biden administration with all you know the weapons and the uh, no strings attached uh, money and uh, and shipments. Of, Like there is like almost a daily ship arriving in the in Israel today or like every day, uh, with uh, like uh, weapons and uh, including uh, high precision bombs, including like the two thousand pound bombs that uh, Israel have used against civilians in Gaza. So, uh, the U.S. is uh, also complicit in the genocide that is that is happening. Who can stop this? uh of course the us because even the, the united nations cannot really take any decision or cannot um, like the UN council security council cannot really make any decision on on this if the uh if the biden administration uses the veto so basically it is in the hands of the biden administration and I think like just from looking at what they have been saying kind of lately, I think they they realized how uh, mistaken they were and they realized the the size of the massacre and the genocide that is going on in Gaza. And they are trying kind of maybe now kind of, uh, I don't know, like maybe make up for it or something by talking about the Palestinian state and talking about uh, reducing the level of deaths every day and uh, trying to massage maybe what, what, what has happened and what, is, uh, uh, what, what the Israelis, Israelis are doing in Gaza. Yeah.
1: Any thoughts, Sebas? Can,
2: can, can I ask of a little bit of a follow-up real quick? What's that? Um,
6: so I think that basically answers my question for the most part. So what I'm gathering from Ashraf is it's not just uh, Netanyahu, but it's all the prime ministers from Israel – as well as an extent of the U.S. federal government. Um, I, I feel it seems like there may be more players in this, and I don't know if you guys are aware of that or not, because the whole it seems like the whole reason behind this siege of Gaza, as many of us know, is to get the oil and natural gas there, which we estimate between half a trillion to a trillion dollars, plus Israel's you know, planning on settlements and possibly a canal. Um, what about the UK and other foreign involvement that's behind this? And I think my question was, and I don't know if this is a second question: is, is it separate charges for the U.S. and other people, or are they all just together in the South African? Everybody's just lumped together, or are there separate charges? And that's too much. That's fine. Just answer my initial question. Well,
3: the case, the South Africa case is particularly uh, on Israel. Um, So that's I mean, that's the the short answer, I guess, to that is it's particularly looking at Israel now, whether South Africa or any other states will bring charges to other countries for assisting because there's also other aspects of the genocide convention that also include, um, uh, you know, aiding and assisting and and, and enabling genocide. There was just a case that just um, in in a federal court in Oakland, you may have heard many Palestinians, human rights organizations and the Center for Constitutional Rights brought a case against the Biden administration um, that was just um, – uh, uh, what do you uh, – Yeah, uh, they said it's not it, – It was outside of the authority. jurisdiction, yeah. but the judge made it very clear that he did believe that um, the charges of genocide like the ICJ did were valid and that you know the administration should do everything it can to stop it. So again, it was a validation of what mm. Palestinian people themselves have been saying for 75 years. Um, so what, you know how this is going to play out in the international courts and domestically as well, we have yet to see.
1: Yeah. Thanks for calling in, CBAS. Mm-hmm. Thank you. I'm Mario Espinoza-Kulik with you for Central Coast Voices on KCBX, Central Coast Public Radio, your listener-supported radio station. If you recently joined us for today's Central Coast Voices and want to listen to the entire broadcast, you can. It's available at our website, k- www.kcbx.org. Just click under the On Demand tab. Click on Central Coast Voices and you'll find this show and many others to choose from. As we get to the end of our show, we still have time um, for your email questions or comments at voices at kcvx.org. Our guests today are Dr. Ashraf Tubele, Associate Professor at Cal Poly, Dr. Farah al nakib Associate Professor of History at Cal Poly, and Dr. Heidi Hutchison, a local emergency physician with on-ground experience in Gaza. As we've discussed today, the theme of shared humanity is essential to understanding the experiences and perspectives of Palestinian people. In this final segment, I want to focus more on that and what our listeners can do to continue to learn, engage, and support. Now, um, we only have just a little bit of time, so I wanted to ask our guests if there's any closing thoughts and things that we might not have gotten to.
4: Yeah, I'd like to close just by saying that, you know, some people, uh, many people may have difficulty connecting with the humanity of Palestinians because their perception of them has been formed by sound bites and, and headlines. But again, you know, Gaza is full of normal human beings, just like me and you, with hopes and dreams and a desire for peace and prosperity for their family. It's important to consider that most likely your assumptions of their ideology or worldview may not be accurate. And from my perspective, the simplest and most important thing to understand about this topic is that our nation is supporting and participating in a man-made humanitarian disaster of unprecedented scale far beyond the boundaries of what we might consider a quote-unquote typical war in modern history. This topic is often rightfully defined by its political and historical context, and I do, of course, feel that that's very important and very possible for anyone to learn about and understand. But in my view, a person can have nearly any historical, political, or religious perspective on Israel and Palestine and still come together with those with opposing views to recognize the utter inhumanity that's occurring we can all come together to demand an end to the disproportionate displacement, starvation, and slaughter of an innocent population. And as voters, with so many of our tax dollars involved, we have the responsibility, power, and ability to demand that our politicians do better, to find a better way, and to protect innocent life.
1: Thank you so much, Dr. Heidi Hutchison. And thank you so much for all of you for joining us today and everything you're doing in our communities to raise awareness around this issue. Our guests today have been Dr. Ashraf Tubele, Associate Professor at Cal Poly, Dr. Farah Al-Nakib, Associate Professor of History at Cal Poly, and Dr. Heidi Hutchison, a local emergency physician with on-ground experience in Gaza. To keep up with our guests, get involved, and learn more about upcoming events and programs, you can contact slowpal.solidarity at gmail.com. Also, be sure to ask for a resource guide that gives a full comprehensive overview to understanding Palestinian history, media, and other educational materials. We hope you'll join us next time on Central Coast Voices for our show on Thursday, February 8th at 1 p.m. with host Fred Monroe to continue a dialogue on topics that impact our communities. Central Coast Voices has been sponsored by Action for Healthy Communities and the San Luis Obispo Community Foundation in collaboration with KCBX. We also depend on listener support, so please consider making a donation today or become a member with your monthly donation online at www. KcBx.org, I'm Mario Spinoza Kulik and thank you for your joining us today.